When celebrating one of the feasts of the Jewish calendar, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Like many large cities, there were a number of ways he could have chosen to enter the city. Um, to enter Jerusalem, he chose to enter through the gate by the pool of Bethesda. The pool was unique in that multitudes and uh, droves of sick and lame people would gather by the waters at the edge because they had this superstitious idea that an angel would stir up the waters and bring healing there. I can imagine that people would wait for quite a while for even the slightest chance of being able to see again or walking or for cures to their various illnesses. As he walked through the multitudes of the sick and wounded, he encountered a man who had been there for quite a while. The man had been an invalid for 38 years and had been waiting there, coming to the pool time and time again uh, to try to get that healing. When Jesus asked him if he wanted to get well, the man responded almost as if he'd stopped believing that the miracle was even possible. In response, Jesus told him, get up, pick up your pallet and walk. And immediately the man did so. 38 years of life as an invalid were finally over. His miracle of God had come. He began walking through the city, testing out his newfound strength, carrying his belongings with him. And people began to harass him. You see, this was not an ordinary day. This was a Sabbath, a day of rest. And to carry your belongings was strictly forbidden by Jewish law. As the people began harassing him and giving him a hard time, the man responded that he was simply doing what the man who had healed him had told him to do. When they found out that the man who had healed him was Jesus, they were outraged that not only had he told the man to break the law, but he'd broken the law himself to heal the man in the first place. They sought to find him and confront him. When they found him, Jesus was unapologetic. He said quite simply, My father is working and so am I. His father, God. This made their blood boil. How did he dare? How did he have the nerve to claim equality with God? He told them that if he was the only one that said he was equal with God, his testimony could be discounted. It would, there would be no truth in it. But that there were other testimonies that, that made that same claim. One of the testimonies was a testimony of John the Baptist, who had been proclaiming that a Savior was coming, preparing people's hearts as they listened, and many people were rejoicing at the news. Another testimony was his own healing, the fact that he was bringing healing to people, performing great works. And while he was being criticized for doing this on the Sabbath, it definitely displayed his power and substance. A third testimony was the testimony of God the Father, though he reasoned that the people that were criticizing him had not heard that testimony. And the fourth and final testimony, he said, was the testimony of the scriptures themselves, the same documents that they'd misconstrued in creating a complex system of laws to legalistically avoid sin. He told them, he stressed to them, that they were missing the love of God in the scriptures and overemphasizing the letter of He really called them to come to him for life, to re-examine the scriptures, to get beyond the laws of their day and to find him there. Good morning. Glad you're all here to worship with us. We're going to dig into another scene from the life of Jesus. Um, we've been looking at different snapshots from his life in the book of John. The book of John was written so that people might believe that Jesus Christ is who he said he is. And so we've been digging into these scenes from his life uh, and 
pulling out of it what it says about his character and also about his identity. And so we're going to dig into another scene today. These are source material. If you're investigating Christianity, checking it out, trying to figure out if it's real, if Jesus Christ is real, this is source. This is the source. We're looking at the life of Christ himself and seeing what he said and trying to figure out what that means uh, for us today. John 5, 1 through 5 says, Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for a feast of the Jews. Now there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Those are patios. Here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. And you'll notice uh, skips verse 4. It's not a typo. It actually, the reason that that's that way is because um, verse 4, when they, when they set up the chapters and the verses in the scriptures, um, they included a verse 4 at the time because uh, they thought it was a part of the book that the Apostle John wrote, but actually, um, he didn't write verse 4. They, they figured out in the, as they go through the years, they find uh, more and more accurate manuscripts of the original writings, and verse 4 wasn't included in the original manuscripts, the ones that are closer to the time of the writing of this passage, so they don't include it now. But it was written to explain why people were gathered there. So afterwards, they, they thought, well, this, this maybe doesn't make as much sense as it could. So somebody added to John's words. And so they're, they're very particular in the translations of the scripture about which words are added and which are not. And so they took that, that one out. But it explained they, they, there was a superstition or a belief that rose <clears throat> that um, an angel stirred the waters in the pool of Bethesda. And the first one in the pool after the stirring of the waters would be healed. You know, last one's a rotten egg and the first one in gets healed. And so uh, they, they wrote that verse to, to explain that. Um, and then it, it just describes in verse 5, one, the one who, there was one there who had been an invalid for 38 years. Well, the pool is fed by an underground spring. And so... The water would be released from the underground reservoir and then it would fall suddenly and that's what would cause this, the stirring of the waters and that's where the superstition came that the angel was stirring up the waters. Um, for many years the side of the pool was lost but it was actually uncovered in the 1960s. It was under centuries of debris and an archaeological dig pulled the, the pool of, they discovered the pool of Bethesda again. But anyway, this is the location for the third scene that we're looking at, the healing at Bethesda. Jesus meets a man here who had been an invalid for 38 years. A lot of, a lot of people, during the, the feasts, the Jewish feast, as people gathered, the, the crowd at the pool of Bethesda would grow. And so Jesus goes to the pool and walks among the, the crowd, and he sees a man there who had been an invalid for 38 years. We aren't really sure why. There's no specific diagnosis given in the passage, just that he hasn't been mobile for years. He, he hasn't been able to walk to get around on his own. 
for whatever reason, he is weak, he's feeble, and he's unable to stand. In the midst of this scene, with all the sick gathered at the pool, Jesus demonstrates the power to heal completely. John John 5, 8, 8 through 9, the first part of verse 9 says, Then Jesus said to him, Get up, pick up your mat, and walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat, and he walked. This is a dramatic and decisive healing that we see here. Can you imagine how this man felt? He's laying there. Jesus comes along, tells him to get up. At that moment, he had a choice. Do I try it or do I not? (laughs) He decided to go ahead, get up. He believed that, that Jesus had the power to heal. He stood up, picked up his mat, and walked. A very dramatic and decisive healing. Um, in, in the verses preceding the healing, we learn some things about the way God works that are very important to us today. What we learn, the first thing we learn is that he will only help those who want it. It's a very, a very important thing to understand as you relate to God. Um, he, he will only help those who cooperate with him and those who actually want him to help. <clears throat> Seems like an odd question, doesn't it? In verse 6, Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time. And he asked him, do you want to get well? That, does that seem like a no-brainer <laughs> to you? Seems like a, a, an obvious question. But, you know, the truth is some people don't want to be helped. There are several reasons why. They, they either cling to the victim role because they crave the attention that people give them in that role. You know, they, they like their problems or they like their sickness because they, like, they want to be attended to. That actually happens psychologically. And then second, they, they, they could fear change because they become so comfortable with their pain and problems that they can't imagine <clears throat> what it would be like without them. Sort of like a security blanket, you know, my, my pain, my problems, the things I'm dealing with. They just can't imagine what the change would be like so they don't want it. So that's actually a very good question. Do, do you want to get well? Um, it, it, it makes sense if you think about it. It brings us to the next lesson, however. We must choose faith to receive God's help. Jesus is the solution for those who give up trying to solve in their own effort and their own strength their problems. He's not for those who don't give up their own, in their own effort. He, he, he is going to be the solution for those who give up trying to solve their problems in their own strength and wisdom. In verse 7, it says, Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Somebody beats me to the pool every time. So really what he's saying is, yes, I'd like the help, but I I don't see how it's ever going to happen. I, I can't see that happening. So I'm just stuck. I'm stuck where I am. I'm not going to be able to change, not going to be able to get the healing that I want. And, you know, there are many attitudes and struggles that we hold on to. This is an actual physical healing that takes place here. Jesus has the power to do that. I believe he still has the power to do that today. Um, But this also applies to our own 
struggles and emotional problems and attitudes that we have. We hold on to many of them because either we want to cling to our victim role, we like that, we like we try to gather the attention from it. We can't imagine what it's going to be like if I don't worry about this. If I don't if I don't continue to deal with this problem, I can't imagine what life's going to be like on the other side. So so we hold on to it. We can let these things go in faith, just like this man did. There, there's a lesson here. This is the way God works. We must do what this man did with the things we're working through. He took his first step in years in response to Jesus' word. He took his first step in years, and then he picked up his mat, which was an act of faith. It's an expression of faith that Jesus had healed him completely. A guy, a Bible teacher named G. Campbell Morgan, said that the reason Jesus ordered him to take up his mat was in order to make no provision for a relapse. <laughs> you know, he didn't leave his mat there. He wasn't planning to go back and lay down again. He picked up his mat and he walked. This is, this is a pattern. This is the way God works in our lives. There's a pattern here that we need to gather. The, this pattern for this healing is the pattern for dealing with our own attitudes and our own emotional struggles that, we, that we're working through. You, you know, you probably have things that have been bothering you for years, either thoughts that keep coming back or emotions that you're, you're struggling with, that keep welling up inside of you that you can't, you can't deal with. And in faith, you can let them go. It's, it's, it's more like a battle, but in faith, you can let them go. I've experienced this. But this is the pattern in, in the healings that you see Jesus do in the New Testament. In John 4, we looked at the woman at the well last week. And there's a, there's a story sandwiched in between that, that scene and the one we're looking at today about uh, an official in Capernaum. Jesus comes to Capernaum, an area of Galilee. And while he was there, an official's son is sick, gets sick. And he's at home, uh, and the man goes to Jesus and asks him to heal his son. And Jesus has a little quick discussion with him, and then he says, your son, your son is well. He just makes a statement, your son is well. And I love what verse 50 says in chapter 4. It says, at the end of it, it says, the man took Jesus at his word, and he departed. So Jesus said, your son is well. The guy believed him, and he started heading home. That's what he did. Okay, enough said. Jesus said it. I'm just heading home. I'm going to go see my son. So on his way home, he runs into his servants. His servants are coming to meet him. And the servants say, hey, you know what? Your son got better. He's, he's well. And they told him that he was healed the exact same time of day that Jesus made that statement. This is a pattern. This is the way it goes. As you work with God, if you want to get past the things you're struggling with, you just need to believe him. You need to believe what he says. I'll show you how this has worked out in my life. I don't know about you, but there are certain things when I have to deal with them. And sometimes maybe they're rare occasions when I have to deal with something, but I dread it. I know it's coming. And it's not just that I dread it and procrastinate a little bit, but I dread it to the core. (laughs) 
It's something I dread, and I know it's got to be done, and it, it shakes me, sort of thing. And I was doing this with something a couple years ago, and I, I was reading in my morning devotions, my quiet time, I get up in the morning, try to spend some time in the Bible, and, and I was reading, and I read uh, Joshua 1.9. It says, Have I not commanded you, be strong and of good courage, be not frightened, neither be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you whenever you go. So then I started looking into the Hebrew behind that verse that it was originally written in. The word frightened means dread. And I, I started thinking, God, that is wrong for me to be dreading this because I know you're going to be with me. I know that you're going to be there. In fact, I know that you're using this thing that I dread to make me a different kind of person. So you know what I did? I said, God, I'm going to refuse to dread. Every time it starts stirring up inside of me, I'm going to say, God, thank you for what you're doing in me through this thing. This thing that I dread. Thank you for the way that you're growing me and strengthening me and changing me. And thank you for the fact that when I do have to deal with it, you're going to be there with me. What a difference. But you have to do that in faith. This is the pattern that God uses. You get into the scripture, he speaks to you, and then you have to choose whether or not you're going to believe it. And whether or not you're going to refuse the other stuff. You don't have to struggle with the attitudes and the emotions that you're, you're struggling with if you'll trust God and get past it. Same thing with, I don't know if you have this thought, but I've had this before. I'm never going to change. This situation is never going to get better. And the problem with the situation is, I'm always there. <laughs> I'm the problem. I'm never going to get better. You know, the truth is, God is at work in you to will and to purpose. He's at work in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. That's Philippians 2.13. You know, when you start thinking things are never going to change, in faith, God will work with you. And he will bring the change about. I've seen it happen over and over and over again in my life. I think, oh, I'm so frustrated with myself. Somebody just punched me. You know, somebody just knocked me down. I'd feel so much better. You know what? God's at work. He, he will make the changes if you'll continue to walk with him. He's patient with you. So you can be patient with yourself as you watch him work. But you have to do that in faith. If you're trying to make the changes in your own strength and your own wisdom and your own effort, hmm, that, that is a real rough spot to be in. It's a tough place to be. So same thing with worry. You, you just, you know, turn it over to God. Trust God in faith. You can't control things anyway. But this is the pattern. You get into the, the word. You hear what Jesus says. You hear what God says. You choose faith and you let it go. You move on and do what you, what you can do. Before moving on with the story, I'd like to take a pause and ask you a question. Do you believe in miracles? I know sometimes you read in the Bible, and this, this is very dramatic healing. And you, you can read some stories in the, in the Old Testament. It seems just incredible what happened. But Jesus is going to state at the end of this passage we're looking at that these miracles are actually proof. They're an evidence. They're one of the evidences that I am the Son of God. And so I want to show you 
a clip from the case for Christ again, which was uh, put together. It's a video that was put together by Lee Strobel based on a book he'd written. He went from atheist to committed believer in Jesus Christ. And so he's chronicling his own story and he's weaving in interviews with experts on different things. And I'd like to show you this clip because it, it, it shows us the the historical aspects of the evidence from these miracles. It's, it's kind of interesting. Let's watch this. In addition to the claims that Jesus makes about himself in the New Testament, there were also reports that he performed the miraculous, that he walked on water and healed the sick and turned water into wine and, and raised the dead and did exorcisms. And so I had to know, uh, is there evidence that these miracles are a result of his divine nature? Jesus' contemporaries, that is people who liked him, people who were indifferent, neutral, and people who opposed him all acknowledged he did extraordinary things. Now, of course, the people who liked Jesus and believed in him and followed him said Jesus did these powerful works because of the Spirit of God. People who opposed him would say, well, I admit he does these amazing things, but it's because the devil is helping him. The Talmud actually speaks of some of these things in some of the passages that deal with Yeshua. It has him as a, well, a magician. Now, why do they describe him as a magician? It's, it's not flattering. There's a historical recognition here that when Yeshua came, he did miracles, just as Isaiah 35 indicates in the Messianic age, when the Messiah comes, he'll be able to make the blind see and the lame walk. The New Testament Gospels record at least 40 separate miracles performed by Jesus during the course of his ministry. They include healings, exorcisms, mastery over nature, and even raising of the dead. Christian theology has always held that these miracles are part of a total picture that displays the attributes of God himself. Unlimited power, total knowledge, ever-present, unchanging, eternal. There's no question. The fascinating thing about that statement in the Jewish Talmud is that that's the opposition. We're about to see the tide turn here. In John 5, the tide turns strongly against Jesus. And the Jews, remember, they, as we've been looking at these scenes, if you've been here the last few weeks, keeps referring to the Jews, the religious leaders of the day. They're the ones who wrote the Talmud. That's the rabbinical writings that are in addition to the scriptures. So in the Talmud, they, they, they acknowledge these miracles. So they weren't trying to deny him. We've been reading stories. The reason I show that, one reason is, we've been reading stories that were written by his followers, Christ's followers. But in, in other books of the day, he was acknowledged as a man who did amazing things. So these, these are the ones who opposed him. Uh, we're about to get a, a sense of the opposition here. In, in this scene, we see Jesus showing real courage in the face of the opposition. Uh, let's read through 9 through 18, verses 9 through 18. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath. So the Jews, here they are, the Jews, the opposition, said to the man who had been healed, it, it is the Sabbath, the law forbids you to carry your mat. Now, I, I personally think that's ridiculous. <laughs> I mean, they're being ticky-tack. That's what we used to call it when you play pick-up pick basketball. That's a little ticky-tack, you know. 
shouldn't call that foul. That's ridiculous. What are you thinking? But after studying the law, the teachers of Israel had, perhaps with good intentions, maybe not, spelled out 39 different ways that you could break the Sabbath by doing different kinds of work. Carrying any kind of load on the Sabbath day was forbidden. So they see this man. He'd been laying there for 38 years. He's healed by Jesus. He's carrying his mat. They don't praise God. They don't honor, you know, they don't honor the work that was done. Hey, what are you doing carrying that mat? Don't you know it's the Sabbath? You know, they're, they're enforcing their rules. And even in this healing on the Sabbath day, Jesus is making a point. And here's the point he's making. God's word, the genuine article, is a blessing, not a burden to people. It, it gives protection and it prescribes a good life and the best life that we can live and the best way to do relationships. It is never a burden. But what they were doing is they were adding to the word of God. That's why the actually that's why the guys took verse four out, because we're very careful about what the scripture actually says, not adding to it, not taking away nothing like that. But these guys, they were they were creating a whole structure that you had to add to the Bible and pull off so that you could be right with God. And it was also very self-serving. And so Jesus is making a point. God's word is never a burden. But then uh, the man replied, they asked him, you know, they, or they told him that he shouldn't be carrying his mat on the Sabbath. And the man replied, the man who made me well said to me, so pick up your mat and walk. So this guy's obviously he's been laying there for 30 years, 38 years or so, and he's not very bold because he's like, go talk to him. He told me to do it. <laughs> And uh, so they asked him, who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? And you hear him again. The man who was healed had no idea who it was. I don't know. I don't know who it was. For Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Later, Jesus found him at the temple and he said to him, see, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. And Jesus didn't mean by this that all sickness is a result of sin. Because that's not, that's not what he teaches. But there could have been some sin that this man had been involved in that was sapping the life out of him. Or a lack of faith. or some, Something could have been causing this. Because we are fully integrated systems. And we can get sick with certain patterns of sin. Um, it, maybe it wasn't this, but uh, it's true. If you're a contentious person... Actually, Proverbs says that, that that rots your bones, causes real problems in your life. If, if you're a person that's constantly causing upset, in fact, you're using upset as a tool to get your way, that, that can rot your bones. It, make, it can make you sick. There, there are things like that. Bitterness is another one. But there, there is sin that you choose. And as you choose it, you're, you're creating physical problems in yourself. Worry can do that to you. So anyway, um, that's something Jesus says there. In verse 15, it goes on. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. So it's interesting. He had just been healed, but he goes back and tells the Jews who it was. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, didn't matter how good they were or how amazing they were, how much power they showed, the Jews persecuted him. 
Jesus said to them, My father is always at work to this very day, and I too am working. Very bold statement. For this reason, the Jews tried all the harder to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So, in spite of the ridiculous religion that these guys were trying to enforce, Jesus makes very bold statements. He, he spells out a couple of very bold things. First of all, he highlights the work of God in response to their pettiness. And pettiness is really not a strong enough word. If I couldn't think of another word, I mean, that's, that's petty. You know, hey, I think it's great that you're healed, you know, from the sickness for 38 years, but what are you doing carrying the mat? That's, that's kind of petty. And so in the midst of that, Jesus points out what's actually going on. God is at work here. You know, we do that. We're involved in something, and uh, it's really good. What's happening is really good stuff. But we're threatened or out of pride. We start pointing out what's wrong with it. You know, we get, we get ticky-tack. We get petty. And that's what these guys were doing in the worst kind of way. But Jesus' immediate answer to his critics is, this is the work of God here. He is at work, and I am working as well. In, in other words, you, <clears throat> your, your traditions and your rules are a burden on people to the point where you can't even see what God is doing. And you have to be careful with that. We as people, we like our structures. We like to come up with the rituals and the, the religious stuff that's going to make us feel good about ourselves. And so we do certain things that we can do in our own effort and with our own wisdom. And many times we miss the very thing that God's wanting to do or the very thing that God's wanting to say because we've got our structure that we're bringing to it. God's truth sets you free. It doesn't weigh you down like that. So he's saying, wake up and realize that God's at work. Let go of your structure. The leaders were overbearing. And it's interesting this week in, a, in another, <clears throat> in a quiet time of my morning devotions with God where I get into Scripture and pray, I was reading Titus 1. And one of the qualifications of a leader in the church is that they're not to be overbearing. And I looked into the Greek behind that word that this passage was written in. It actually means self-pleasing. They're not to be self-pleasing. And so as we lead, this is, this is the people you put in leadership show the values of the organization. And um, so you find out the values of Jesus Christ and his church by the leaders he wants you to put into place. They aren't to be self-serving. They aren't to be glory hogs, self-serving power grabbers that use people for their own advantage. And that's what these guys were doing. This is the very opposite of what Jesus values. And so he wasn't afraid to go right to the point. And he, he says, look, this is God at work, and I am working too. I'm working with God. And then he claims to be equal with God. He says, my father. It's a very courageous statement that he makes in response to the, the misunderstanding and anger of the Jewish leaders. There is no doubt who he's claiming to be. So the Jews try harder to kill him. When he said, my father, instead of our father, they knew exactly what he meant. 
I am the Son of God. I am the Messiah, the promised one that you've been looking for. I am God himself. And so then Jesus, we're skipping a few verses just for the sake of time, he cites four witnesses that confirm his identity. We're just going to walk through these quickly. Um, he says in verse 31 and 32, If I testify about myself, my testimony is not valid. There is another who testifies in, testifies in my favor. And I know that his testimony about me is valid. The first witness that he brings to the stand is John the Baptist, who was a prophet that was foretold in the Old Testament that would come before the Messiah, before the Christ, and he would prepare the way. It was prophesied in Isaiah 43, and it's, he's identified Matthew 3.3 as the prophet, uh, the voice of one calling in the desert. In verse 33 and 35, he says, You have sent to John, and he has testified to the truth, John the Baptist, not that I accept human testimony, but I mention it that you may be saved. John was a lamp that burned and gave light, and you chose to, for a time to enjoy his light. So John the Baptist is a first witness. That's part of the prophecy that was being lived out that Jesus fulfilled. We're going to look at that a little more in a bit. Uh, the second witness is his own works are miracles. Verse 36, I have testimony weightier than that of John, for the very work that the Father has given me to finish and which I am doing testifies that the Father has sent me. Um, Jesus' miracles, as we, they, he, he, he calls on them as evidence of his identity. Um, and the greatest miracle was the resurrection. That's what Mark's going to look at tonight. We're, we're sort of touching on these Matters And then in the seminars uh, that are going to go on tonight and next week, Mark's going to go into the details. And uh, I'm looking forward to that. But anyway, the greatest miracle was the resurrection. We're going to look at the evidence for that tonight. But that's the second witness, his own work and miracles. The third one is the witness of God himself. Verse 37 and 38. And the father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. You have never heard his voice nor seen his form. Nor does his word dwell in you, for you do not believe the one he sent. God himself, if, if you're going to come to faith in Christ, if you're investigating him and trying to figure out whether or not he's real, as you come to him, ask God to speak to you. Ask him to show you that he's real. And, and he will. He has the power to do that. There's a voice deep inside that he will he will use to speak to you. He, we are made to relate and obey God. So when we hear him, when we hear about him, when we get into the scriptures, it rings true on a deep level if you want to know him. If you want to know him, he speaks to us. Um, so the witness of God himself. And then fourth, the scriptures. And he says he points out some things that are helpful for us today. <clears throat> In verse 39, he starts out, you diligently study the scriptures because you think that in them, you think that by them you possess eternal life. These are the scriptures that testify about me. So in other words, they're digging into the scriptures because they think that the laws in the scripture are the path to eternal life. But he's saying the scriptures are talking about me. I am the way to eternal life. I am the one that brings you life says, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. So you're into the scriptures. They, they testify about me, 
You think they have life, but you, so you refuse to come to me to have life. I do not accept praise from men, but I know you. I know that you do not have the love of God in your hearts. In spite of all the evidence that the scriptures bring that point to Jesus as the Messiah, they refuse to accept him as that. Why is that? The human will. They will not, they will not bow their hearts and their lives to, to the truth that they're seeing before their eyes. They're seeing it lived out before their eyes. And this is the problem with the Jewish leaders, and there's a lesson in it for us. They were reading God's word with a personal agenda, and they were missing the point. They were taking their framework. They had created this framework, and they were taking their framework to the Bible. And they were making the Bible fit into their framework. And that's something we have to be careful. We all have a framework. When we begin to check into Christianity, when we continue in Christianity, we have this framework and we've got to be willing to allow God to shape our mind and our thinking and to break down the old framework that doesn't line up with the reality that God has put into place here in this world. So they were fitting God's word into their man-made framework and missing the truth that would set them free. So they had all kinds of truths or things that they believed were true that were weighing them down. And everybody around them, the people that were under them, weighing them down as well. It's important to let God's word shape your mind as you move on. Going on in verse 43, it says, I have come in my father's name and you do not accept me. But if someone else comes in his own name, you will accept him. How can you believe if you accept praise from one another and yet make no effort to obtain the praise that comes from the only God? So they were letting the fear of men keep them from following Christ. And it's tempting to do the same today as we follow Christ. We, we hold back because we're afraid about, of, of what the other people will say. You know, there was common opinion about Christ and they they were all sort of building steam toward that common opinion this is a check for us and then verse 45 moving on it says but do not think I will accuse you before the father your accuser is Moses on whom your hopes are set so what he's saying here is that the scriptures that you think possess eternal life they're going to accuse you they were written by Moses those are the things that are accusing you. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But since you do not believe what he wrote, how are you going to believe what I say? So Jesus is just pointing out that the prophecies in the Old Testament are all pointing to me, and you can't see it because you have a personal agenda that you're trying to work out. We have to watch out for that. I'd like to show you another clip before we wrap up from the case for Christ. And it, there's some very interesting things about in this clip about how the prophecies are pointing toward Jesus Christ in the future. And it's, it's exactly in line with these points that Jesus is making here. So let's watch this clip. This is Yashiyahu 53.6 or Isaiah 53.6. Kulanu katson ta'inu, ishla darko paninu, padonai hifniya bo, eight avon kulanu, 
All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. I had a friend who wrote this out on a piece of paper. He typed it up on his computer without any verse notations. And he took it around to everyone uh, in his office. He worked in a big office for a motor vehicle bureau in one of the big states in our country. And he showed it to everyone in the motor vehicle bureau and uh, in the state capitol. And he said, just tell me who this is and where it comes from. And every single person that looked at it, Jew or Gentile alike, it didn't matter. Everyone that looked at it read it, and he said, who is this? They said, well, it's obviously Jesus of Nazareth. That's who it is. And it's from the New Testament. And then my friend would say, but no, it's not from the New Testament. It's from the Hebrew Bible. It was written eight centuries before Jesus came. Can you believe this? And he showed it to them from Isaiah. And people really had a hard time. Because if you read this passage without any kind of presuppositions or bias, you will read it, and it will be really clear that this is the life of, of Yeshua. Now, could he have fabricated this, or is this just a big coincidence? In the Old Testament, we really have two kinds of prophecies. We have prophecies that are fulfilled uniquely in Christ, and prophecies that are fulfilled typologically in Christ. And I do think we need to distinguish between the two. Uh, those that are fulfilled uniquely in Christ were, were once and for all fulfilled by Jesus. And those are the ones that we can really point to, to have apologetic value. That is to demonstrate that, that Jesus was the only person who could have possibly fulfilled this. His birth in Bethlehem is one of those prophecies. His role as the suffering servant of Isaiah 53 is one of those prophecies. His entrance into Jerusalem on a donkey from Zechariah chapter 9. These are clear evidence that Jesus is fulfilling the Old Testament. The most amazing part of Isaiah's prophecies is in Isaiah 9 when it speaks about the son of David coming to be the king, to sit on the throne of David and have an eternal righteous kingdom. And everyone knows it from Handel's Messiah. Unto us a son is born, unto us a child is given. And the idea of this verse is that the Messiah will actually be born, physically born. And then it says, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Father of Eternity, in other words, he's the creator, the author of time. Some skeptics have said that Jesus could have engineered the fulfillment of these prophecies. Of course, Jesus could not have determined where he was going to be born. So to be born in Bethlehem, obviously he could not have engineered that. Also, as the suffering servant, it would have been difficult for him to engineer such a specific fulfillment of Isaiah 53. But on the other hand, the fact that Jesus performed certain actions that in fact fulfilled prophecies only demonstrates that he was indeed the Messiah. Um, anyone who enters Jerusalem riding on a donkey, an obvious fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9 is saying, yes, I am the Messiah. So we certainly have a glimpse in that fulfilled prophecy of the self-consciousness of Jesus, that he truly believed that he was the Messiah. Scholars have determined that Jesus fulfilled at least four dozen major prophecies, each written a minimum of three centuries before his birth. Their content ranged from specific details about his life to the symbolic implications of his death. Psalm 22 gives a poetic picture by David, written in the first person, of what the Messiah will be like in his suffering. And one of the things he says is that they will pierce my hands and my feet. Now, David wrote, before crucifixion was known, probably by about 300 years, so Isaiah 53 says he was pierced through. It gives us the reason for stuff. He was pierced through for our 
iniquities. So there's a purpose. He dies not just because he's a martyr, but because he's a substitution for sin. A college professor of mathematics and science named Dr. Peter Stoner. Um, it's amazing how the prophecies really do point to Christ. That's just a little taste of, of how that is. is so. Uh, I'd encourage you, if you're checking out Jesus Christ, continue your search. As you search, as you try to weigh the evidence, ask God to speak to you. He can and he will. Um, if you're struggling today with an attitude or an, a, some, some emotional pain that you want to let go of, um, take it to God in faith. If you're walking with the Lord, take it to him in faith. Find out what the scripture says about that and believe it. Trust God to help you work through it. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for the truth that we find in your word. I'm, I'm grateful, God, that uh, your, your word, your, your truth, your, your guidance is not a burden. It's not something that weighs us down, but it sets us free. And if we will choose to walk with you in faith, to trust you, take you at your word, Father, you will change us. And you will give us the power to get past these things. But help us, Father, to, to learn to go to you and not uh, create in our own mind the framework, but allow you to build that framework and thinking in us that needs to be there. Father, help us with this, I pray. Set us free from the pain, from the struggles, from the things we're going through, to live for you and help us to know more and more uh, the joy that comes as we, as we choose to walk with you. God, we ask for your help in this. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.